Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a special guest, friend, and home improvement entrepreneur, Brian Elias. With just $5,000 in savings, Brian started and built Hanson's, a company selling replacement windows, siding, and roofing in the Midwest. Brian built Hanson's to more than 70 million in sales, and today Hanson's is one of the top 10 home improvement companies in the United States. In 2017, Brian sold the majority of his shares in Hanson to a private equity firm, Huron Capital. Brian is a marketing genius who understands how to connect with people on a personal level, and he's always willing to give back to his fellow entrepreneurs. Today, Brian and I chat about his decision to sell his business, how he prepared his business to maximize his sale price, and his decision to roll some of his equity back into the business alongside his buyer in hopes of a second liquidity event. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Elias. Brian, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think the message, the lessons that you can give to our fellow founders based on you building and selling a company, they're just going to be invaluable. And what I have to say is when you agreed to take this time slot, I had absolutely no qualms about bumping Mark Cuban from this slot. So thank you for being That's here. That's great, great. Tell Mark, I said, get out of my way. I'm coming <laughs> after him. Nice. I normally like to start these by talking about how we met, how we knew each other. And so ours is kind of funny because the first day I really met you, I see this guy in a golf cart driving around my neighbor's property with a beautiful woman in tow next to him. And my neighbor's house is for sale, but they're away and they're asking me, hey, look over our house, right? I'm like, what is this guy doing, right? So I run over and we, you know, we get to meet each other, find out we're both entrepreneurs. And I give you like a very brief tour of part of our house, get to meet my in-laws. And when you leave, right, we exchange numbers and um, I think we decide we'll like grab a coffee sometime. I go back in and my mother-in-law is like, that was Brian Elias from the TV commercial. She's like all excited <laughs> that she got to meet the celebrity. Which yeah, is I'm great. a legend in my own mind. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> so what I really want to get to are the lessons from you selling your business, but it's such, such a great beginning story. So maybe you could start with, you know, how did you get started? How did you kind of, kind of quickly go through growing this business? It's 27 years. And then we'll get into like decisions to sell and all the kind of lessons. I, I'd love to tell you that I had this great master plan, but I really just sort of wanted my own business and said, I can make a living doing this. I never even thought about selling my business. It never even crossed my mind till probably the last five, seven years I was in it. I actually started off knocking on doors to drum up business. Hi, do you need windows for your home? No, next door. Hi, do you need windows for your home? And you knock enough doors, somebody goes, yes, we do. And I would knock myself into that customer's house or set up an appointment with them, and I'd go and I'd sell it. And then I thought to myself, if I want to grow and scale this, I'd have to replace myself from being, A, the guy that knocks on the doors, and B, the guy that sells it. So I started to think a little bit bigger. And I came up, I'd love to tell you I wrote an org chart, but I didn't, okay? But I was able to picture it in my mind of what it should look like. So I knew I had really three facets of the business, lead generation, 
selling the product, and getting it installed. And I knew if I could master all three and systemize that, I'd have something valuable and something that I could grow, but not something I would sell because that wasn't there yet. Were you doing that beginning piece? Did you just recognize that you're running out of bandwidth? Like you can only knock on so many doors. And so how do I take this from a little lifestyle business into growth mode? Is that how you silo the I think it was more recognizing that you couldn't do everything. Okay. So I figured I'll get somebody to set my appointments and I'll be the sales guy. And then I'll also help schedule the jobs. So I actually started the business with my ex-wife, who and her and I are still good friends. And we went and she sort of ran the back end and she did all the books and things like that. And I took care of the sales, the hiring, and, you know, I hired people to go out and knock on doors because that's how I learned it. So from there, it started to grow. And some of the things I learned by doing, I learned some of the things not to do. So I learned that there's bad advertising out there. So I had a salesman once come to my office. Now, it's going to sound ridiculous, but the guy said, I've got the perfect way of you to get customers. I said, what's that? He says, we go in the Kroger store and on the back of the receipts of the Kroger, where you do business, we're going to put your advertisement on the back of the receipts. Okay. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right in my area, all the people around here shop at Kroger. It was perfect. Yeah. So they go, they design the ad and they put me in a year contract. And I'm thinking, this is great. Well, the first week goes by and I'm waiting for the phone to ring. And it never does. And I realize that people don't really do business off of the back of a receipt. So I paid the price for a year learning. Before you do anything, you test it. And I never forgot that story. And I'm sure you've seen at some point or another some coupons on the back of a receipt. Sure. But it's not really what engages people. So you had to figure out, or I had to figure out, what does engage people, what does work. Mm -hmm. And so I became a chronic tester. So I would test anything for a couple hundred dollars and see if it worked or it didn't work. And from there, that's how I built the company is trial and error. I didn't have any mentors. So it sounds like you had several of lead acquisition channels, right? You certainly had TV and you migrated to the web when that was hot. And that was long. All those things were long after the receipt, but yes. Yeah. 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 But you got better at those things and they change, right? So you got to decide where to put the dollars to maximize the outcome. Right. So, yeah. So the obvious things are today of where to advertise. You got TV, Mm -hmm. you've got the internet, you've got social media, you got direct mail. Those are the obvious. Those are things that you see every single day. Yep. So then it's decide what dollars you're going to put towards each one of those things. Cause you're not really in the, you know, I was in the window business. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't in the window business. I was in the new business business. Yeah. And I had to be thinking to myself, nothing about windows. How do I acquire that customer? What do I have to say to that customer to have them raise their hand and say, pick me. Hello, I'm interested. Yeah. So we started marketing that way. And TV was one of those tools. Obviously, Google has been amazing. Okay. Social media continues to grow. And direct mail has always been there. 
So that's really how we how we built the whole business. That's awesome. And never lost sight of knocking on doors. And the entire time I ran Hanson's, we always had people out in each of our office, literally knocking up business. So, I mean, you built this kind of home improvement juggernaut in Michigan and Ohio, Michigan, right? Ohio. Okay. And what, how long is it before you start thinking, Hey, this has gotten big and I need to think about a next, I don't know if I want to call it chapter or what would you call it as the next stage of growth? You're, you're making a decision to sell the business. Mine, mine was a little different. Mm -hmm. My father died when I was 49 my mother died when she was 53. So both wow. died very young. At the time that I decided to do this, I was right around that age. And I'm realizing that you don't live forever. You know, when you're a kid, you think you're going to beat this. Okay. You think yeah. you're, you know, you might, okay, it's okay. It feels like you're going to live forever. But as you get to that point, you realize, well, what do I have here? And my fear was leaving, if I had died before I sold the business, the business value plummets. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So I really wanted to cash out for that reason. And I wanted to see my business grow, uh, you know, under somebody else's watch. I want to touch on that because when you say the business would have plummeted, right? In a lot of cases, a business can survive, right? If you have the management team, but you are the face of this, right? I was the face of yep. the business and, and I didn't think the business would go away. But I think getting the value out of the business without me there yep. and being the one representing the business, I don't think it would have got the multiple that it got. Yep. So uh, you make this decision, right? Life is looking at you saying, hey, maybe it's time to see what else is out there. How long from that decision, like, hey, I'm, I'm ready to start thinking about this, to actually going to market? Oh, it was probably four or five years. Yeah. So what were you doing in that period of time? Cause I think like knowing you, you're very strategic. So you probably took those four or five years to do some important things, right? The decision was made, you know, relatively quickly to do it, but then how to do it. So I started inter interviewing investment bankers till I found the right person to do the job. That's great. How do can you talk about that process? Cause it is, it's one of the things that we really work on and why we're here is that it is a very difficult process to find the right group. And you ended up finding gold. I, I found super guy, consider him a friend. Mm -hmm. And I make jokes all the time that I underpaid him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because yep. when somebody helps you market your business, okay. And takes you to a level where you don't have to work another day in your life and they package your business and they learn your business better than you know your own business, that is something that you cannot live without. Yeah. And I know after talking to you, that's what you do every single day. Yeah. And when you do that type of work and create that type of value for somebody, okay, you're changing their life. So I interviewed people until I found the person that's, that could get me there, that spoke my language, that could relate with me, that understood my needs, okay? Yep. And that person did that. And that's why, you know, I have such a passion towards him and his team, 
It's fantastic to hear, right? Because we hear so many of the other stories where they didn't understand my business. They didn't know the buyer pool. They didn't market it appropriately. Like the best guys will say exactly what you just said was they understood our business better than we understood it. And more importantly, when they get to know the business that well, they can position it a little differently for each specific buyer. And then they're speaking the buyer's language, right? Which is driving competition and price for you. And that's exactly what happened. And on top of that, he also understood my needs, which was, you know, a lot of people could figure out the business, but how to package it and figure me out and figure out what my needs were. And before he ever looked at his own needs, he looked at my needs. That's great. And to me, that to me is exactly what a good investment banker does is they make sure that they're taking care of their person. Yep. And there was not one minute that I ever thought that he was thinking about his check. He made sure that he thought about my success, which in turn made his success. That's great. A lot of examples of that. I've actually asked founders, how come you decided to work with exit wise? And one of the quotes I remember very specifically was you were the fourth investment banking group that we interviewed and you were the only one that I could tell was not calculating his fee in his head while he was speaking with me. So yeah, making that connection is really important and saying, Brian, this is a life-changing event. What are you really looking for? What do you want? And working towards that. And frankly, it's totally your decision. You can pull the plug anytime. So you got to describe exactly what you are looking for right out of the gate. And sometimes that's hard to figure out. Did you have, right. you had a pretty good sense of what you wanted? I, I got more than what I expected. Okay. Because there was competition. Yep. Because they positioned where people were lined up wanting my business mm-hmm. and that felt great. Yep. And then you have choices at that time to pick which road would be best for you. It's not always the money. Okay. It's the right partner. It's the one that's going to close. If you don't look at things like that, you're making a mistake. So the thing that you have to do is find the right partner, like, you know, an exit wise, where you're passionate about making a difference. I wouldn't be here today and you wouldn't have asked me for this interview. Okay. If that's not what the message that you wanted to get across, because you know what I would say. Okay. I would look at you today and say, I'd hand my business to you anytime because you know what you're doing. You got a great heart, okay? And that heart translates into the work that you do. And that's what I love about you, Todd. Oh, thank you. I didn't actually realize you were speaking about me. but Yes, that's what I love about you. You're so passionate about doing it, and that's probably why you're doing podcasts like these, to get that message out there. Yeah, I mean, it's less about trying to drive customers as it is educating all our fellow founders out there, right? That are building a business. It's the most important asset in their whole lives. And so many of them have failed M&A processes. And I just, I've always seen that as absolute shame on the industry and we know how to change that. So I appreciate you saying that because it really is about creating better outcomes for people like us. So when you were marketing your deal or your investment bankers were marketing Hanson's for sale, do you ever get concerned with the potential buyers that they are sharing your information with? I absolutely was concerned with them sharing my information with one of my competitors and a well-known competitor. 
it scared me for a minute. And my banker got me to get comfortable with it. He says, Brian, what's the worst they're going to do? Know your numbers? At the end of the day, they have businesses to run. Either they're a real buyer or they're not, and you'll find that out in the letter of intent. But don't let fear be your enemy, okay? Let fear be your guide, okay? But make solid business decisions. I have no regrets showing my competitors my stuff. It didn't change one thing in my life, and it wasn't the route that I went down. Don't let it stop you. That's great. Can I ask, um, when you say the letter of intent, was there a different level of sensitivity of the information that's shared uh, before somebody enters a letter of intent to buy your business and then they share more later? Sure. But the majority that they got, they got a lot of it up front. There was not a lot of secrets. Okay. I mean, you look at somebody's financial statement, you got a pretty good idea what the business does. Yes. The data room provides the proof of that data, but it didn't really, it it turned out to be nothing. Generally, what we see is that you protect a customer list or maybe a secret sauce behind your marketing, right? Real detail on how you drive those numbers, but sharing those numbers, a buyer needs to be able to see what they're buying. As you know, um, I was in the consumer business. So my customer list were all one-offs. So there was nobody buying from me, quote unquote, twice. Right. You know, if they, if they bought windows from me, they only needed them once. Yep. But your competitors have a pretty good idea who your customers are. Got it. Okay. They know. So that being said, there's going to be no real secrets there. What they don't know is how much, how much they're spending. And that comes after the letter of intent. And there's some risk, but if you're good to your customers... Customers don't want to switch unless there's a reason to switch. And that's why your competitor wants to buy you in the first place. All right. So you've made this decision. You've got the ideal M&A team in your corner and you've, they've driven competition for your deal. There's something I did before that, that I didn't mention. I went and got a quality of earnings first Yep. because I didn't want to be blindsided later with something that I didn't know. Yep. So It wasn't my strength, but I wrote the check because I thought it was important that if there's something that's going to cause me a problem later, I want to know now because that to me was just good planning and people tried to talk me out of it, but I insisted. I've got to tell you, that is a discussion we have with founders that are in the middle of a process. And what I love about being kind of the Sherpa of a deal is an investment banker will come to us that that we've put in as the quarterback of a deal and say, we really need a quality of earnings done, right? And people hear Q of E, right? And so I go and talk to the founders. Here's the value of it. The fact that you saw the value of that, of having every one of your numbers correct, right? You never want to present a number that isn't right to a buyer because as soon as they find one thing that's wrong, they're going to look for everything and it just works against you in negotiation. So yeah, it's an expensive process, but in the end, when you're going to market with everything absolutely fully understood financially, and they can't poke holes in it, that's what the QOV is for. And, and presenting that to the prospective buyers, yep. okay, we're happily to share it. We did it for ourselves. We were very open about it. We didn't want to be surprised by anything. Yep. So, you know, you're looking at the same thing that we looked at, and yep. we think that, you know, we now have something tangible. They still did their own. Oh, of course. Uh, which, yeah. is, yep. which is fine, yep. but it didn't come back much different. So, 
Yeah, and you're really doing a favor to your whole M&A team, your investment banking group, when you're arming them with truth. And yes, for the audience, private equity firms are always going to do a Q of E. They've got to check that box. Their investment committees require it. But doing one, the seller doing it ahead of time, it's a big advantage, right? It pays dividends for sure. And so it did. We're big fans of that. I would do it again over and over. If I do, if I go through the process again, going through the same thing, I'm going to present it the same way. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice for people to understand. All right. So you've prepped the business in that way. Was there anything else that you did? Because in your industry, it was really like multiples of EBITDAs, how the businesses are valued, right? right? So were you doing anything ahead of time to say, hey, let's prep the business for a higher exit? Or were were all the kind of cylinders firing already? You seem to turn it up at the end, you know, when, because as you're, you know, you realize that every dollar you make, you're going to get a multiple of it. Yeah. So you're, you're really pushing that bottom line really hard yeah. and you start to look at your business and say, okay, where can I trim fat? Because for every dollar you save, it could be anywhere between five and 12 times multiple. Yeah. So save that dollar. Yeah. It's really and, important. Right. We probably should do that anyway in our businesses all the time, mm-hmm. but it, we did look at it that way. So we, that last year, we were able to turn it up pretty good. That's great. Because I, what I think is funny is the buyer's going to do that if you don't, right? right? So you might as well go out and create those efficiencies. And just like you said, for every dollar you drop to the bottom line, you're getting a multiple, five to 10 to whatever the number is Correct. in your pocket. So right. it's a, it, that's a huge lesson. And it's not really a lesson. It, it's kind of inherently obvious, but people don't quite think about it. So planning the exit is pretty important, right? To maximizing your outcome. All right. So you've got, you've got the economics where you want it. You've got the best M&A team in the world on your team. You've done the quality of earnings. You're creating competition or your investment bankers are creating competition for the deal. What happens next? You go through what I call the dog and pony show. The dog and pony show. Okay. And you're, you're basically pitching your business to these people. And you're really not doing the pitch because the pitch is designed for you by your team. So it follows a, you know, a, a process, but you have to be prepared for every question that they may ask. Yeah. And what I learned from the group that I worked with is I don't know is an acceptable answer. It is an acceptable answer. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's better not to try to bullshit some of the smartest people I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. The people that will buy your business in these private equity firms are the smartest human beings I have ever seen, bar none. That being said, I don't know is fine. I certainly can get you that information. I'll get back with you. I don't know. And I got really comfortable saying that. And I think they appreciate that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I I think a lot of our us entrepreneurs, right? We're salespeople. We want to have the answer. We want to make the other person feel comfortable. But like you said, these very smart people at the other end, they already know what the answer is. They're looking for problems, right? They're, they're going to find the red flags. There's right. no pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. So yeah, it's great. And, and when they would have sessions, how come you didn't do this? Or how come you did back to the matter? Sometimes you're in the weeds. Yep. Okay. Instead of working on the weeds or working in, you know, you're sure. working in your business, not on your business. Mm-hmm. And now that you suggested, I question myself why I didn't do it five years ago. And now I'm a little embarrassed. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and I got comfortable with that because they ask yep. great questions. Yeah. You know what, Brian, one of the things I think is amazing about you 
is that you exude confidence and success, but at the same time, you can bring, be self-deprecating to your advantage. You can humble yourself and suggest like, wow, what a great idea, right? I, I should have thought of that before. That's fantastic. It's funny because as a visionary or entrepreneur, I understand what I'm good at, but I also understand what I'm weak at. And that's really important as a leader to know where you're weak. So you have to surround yourself with the people that fill in your weaknesses, not looking for yes people. You're looking for people who will help grow the business. So on your financial side, you need a solid CFO. On your marketing side, you need a solid marketing person. Okay. On your sales side, you need a solid sales guy. On the tech side, you need a solid tech guy, HR, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't have the right team, you actually don't have a business. And the best businesses are the ones with the best team. And people lose sight of that. How do you think that translated in the M&A process? You have, you're, you've got a very well-rounded team in place. Did everybody end up staying? Were they signing employment agreements? How did that I actually lost my marketing director a couple of months before the process. And it was a big bump in the road because we had to account for that. Okay. And so we had to put that on as a potential slot that needs to be filled, yep, yep. scored against us because their wage, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, we were able to get through it. But it's important that they feel you have the right team. Now, the ironic part is there is nobody left at my company that were, you know, on my leadership team. They're all gone. Okay. How long, how long did they last? Oh, really? Yeah, relatively. And it strikes me though, I mean, you're the CEO of Hanson's, but you're really the brand, right? So it seems like an obvious fit for you to fall into that marketing role, right? When you got a new right. boss, essentially. Right. Right. So is th that's essentially what happened. I think they wanted to go their direction. Okay. And I think we knew that beforehand. They were, they were pretty clear about it. Yep. There was no, I didn't get blindsided by anything. Yep. I still sit on the board today yep. and I think they wanted to take it and put what they believe are experts in the positions and they've done a good job. That's great. So, Brian, you are clearly the face of the Hanson's, the company, you're the brand, and then you go into this M&A process, and they've got to know what they're buying. They're buying the future. How did that play out, you being such a strong brand in your company? Well, part of my deal was they wanted the rights to my face, to my voice, and to my name. So, to this day... I'm not able to go on TV for any other product for anything and go, hi, I'm Brian Elias, president of 1-800-Hansons. I'm not allowed to do that. And for good reason, because they bought that right. And I actually thought they were going to continue doing that. And that was part of our contract, that they had the right to continue. But they opted not to. And they, they went a different direction. But they still own the rights to my, to my voice, to my name. Okay. Yeah. And to my face. Yeah. However, they've been pretty flexible with me. In fact, I'm doing some voiceover work for my new company with their permission because it really doesn't affect them. But what they don't want to do is they spent a lot of money to buy my brand. They don't want me capitalizing on the name again. Hi, I'm Brian Elias with Refloor. They don't want that. And I don't blame them, but they won't recognize if I'm just talking about flooring they won't put, the consumer won't put together, hey, that's Brian Elias 
without me saying my name. And certainly not going to prevent them from ordering windows and roofing and siding from Hanson's, right, right? right? But they don't want any conflicts because they bought that right. Today, knowing what I know, I'm not going to put myself front and center because I don't think it helped me. I think you have to build your business where it's not all tied directly to you. So I wouldn't be my face again. I think I learned the lesson. All right. So we covered your decision to sell and prepping the business for sale. Now you've picked your partner in private equity. Typically, right? There's a purchase price and they're going to ask you, Hey, Brian, we want you to have some stake in the game. So I'm assuming because it was private equity that you rolled some equity, right? I so, did roll equity. Okay. And it was planned from the beginning. Yeah. Um, when you build something like this, you're sort of passionate about your business. Yeah. And I wanted to go along for that second ride, that second bite of the apple, as I believe you call that yeah. in your world. Yeah. I want them to kill it. I want them to take the foundation that I built, okay, and kill it. So I'll get another check. And I'm looking forward to getting that next check. And it's coming. That's fantastic. So that's kind of the private equity playbook. Did you look at any potential strategic buyers that might have not wanted you to roll equity? Or was that always on the table? It was always on the table, okay. but it didn't stop me from taking an offer from a strategic without me rolling anything. Got it. So you're just, you chose the partner based on all the elements, the price, the right. rolled equity, the fit, all of that. And will it close? Super important point. Maybe we could drill into that, right? That decision, will it close? Typically in our world comes from the investment banker having a really good relationship with all the buyers, right? There's only a few times where you can pull out of a deal and expect a banker to come back to you and work with you again. So the banker really should only be bringing you deals that will close. What was it? You, you said it like, it's a really important point because a private equity guy says it. Yeah. Does it make it so? Okay. You have to take your own knowledge and your own thinking. You have to trust your guy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. But trust yourself. Okay. And if you have to also look at yourself in the mirror and say, he thinks it'll close with this guy. I don't. Okay. 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 Yep. I mean, I had a few choices and one of them they liked. They liked the one I liked too, which yep. was good. Yep. yep. Okay. But they liked a different one as well. Yep. I didn't. You just weren't feeling it. I didn't think it would make it to the finish line. Just an instinct. The questions that they asked, how it felt when I was done. Yep. Okay. A little apathy, like, you know, the person at the other end of the table, a couple of the people on their team didn't seem to care. And when I see apathy, that's a red flag to me. When I see passion and people saying, we're going to take this business and grow it, and they start discussing how they would, those are the things that, you know, excited me. That's great. The, okay, so the bankers present them a couple of options. They believe in the ability to close. And it's also not just the ability to close, but it's to close at the price that's and structure that's in the LOI, right? We can see buyers come in and say, oh, we didn't know that and we didn't know that. And what they're trying to do is negotiate, right? Part of that quality of earnings that report that they'll do, they'll put that in front of you. And if you haven't done yours and know your numbers, right. they're going to say, well, it's right. not worth what we thought it was worth. We still want to close, but at a lower number. Right. So it's about, you found the guys that close but also close at, you know, the numbers they put in front of you. The, the LOI made it all the way to the end to speak of. That's I mean, awesome. There's always a little adjustments, but it was, 
I would not call it retraded as you guys call it. That's great. That's great. So, um, I didn't you. even know what a sim was when I started this process. So you didn't know what a sim. Was. I had no okay. idea. Yeah, yeah. Confidential information memorandum, right? Right. For, right. But I had no. I, they said, "Well, you know, we're going to build the sim." I'm like, "What sim?" And I'm thinking, "What goes in your phone?" Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. So, but it was a good learning experience. Now That's, I know how to do it. That you you know how to do I, the M&A process, right? I didn't have to clean up anything. Everything was, uh, you know, this time around. Yeah. I'm going to do it again. Yep. And now I know what to do. I mean, you, you have all the instincts. The fact that you were pushing for Q of E is enormous. And for me, what I think the most important thing is, is the team that you put in place by interviewing a bunch of investment bankers. 100%. And it's not investment banks, right? It's right. bankers. You talked about the individual that you think didn't get paid well enough, right? That's, that's the, the resource that you want, right? That's the quarterback on, the, on your team. And you found them, right? Good for you. That's, and, good. And that's awesome. It's really, it's really all about the people you hire. It's yeah. not, you know, they, when they talk about themselves all the time, mm. that doesn't interest me. When they talk about me and what the result's going to be for me, and they're going to come along for the ride, that's what sold me. When they talk about, well, we've done this deal and we've done this deal, and they've all done deals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who's going to best take care of me? And that's who I chose. And that's why I'm here doing this interview with you because you feel the same way. Yeah. You have a passion for partnering with people who have no idea how to do a process like this. Yep. And that's what I like the best about you is you get it. Most Thank of you. these guys, well, we work for this firm and we're out of New York and da, 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 da. At the end of the day, okay, you're just a number, okay? I'd rather deal with somebody who's going to, I know is going to be focused on my deal. Yep. And that's you, Todd, period. Thank you. Yeah, we very much value the personal relationships that get developed, right? We go into situations where we can bring the best team in the world. And so we don't have failures, right? Um, that's really, it's really important if you're going to put an entrepreneur through what you went through, right? Was it six months, seven months yeah. to get a deal done, right? And all that distraction from you potentially being able to build your business further, right? Um, you can't fail. Right. And, and, and if you get something over the goal line, it better be everything that you want, right? That is the job. Well, yep. it has to, it has to fill your needs Yep. and mine filled my needs. And when I do it again, it's going to even fill it better. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you knew how to do it the first time, the next I learned time a lot. Be... I, 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 I wish, yep. so I wish I had listened to this podcast yeah. or something <laughs> like it when I first started my business. Yeah. Okay. Because it was all for the first 15, 20 years. It was just how to make a living. Mm -hmm. Yep. It wasn't building a powerful brand that I could sell to somebody else. And if you think of your business as the asset and you realize that that's your biggest value, yeah. that's what, you know, that to me is what, you know, what drove me. So what I typically like to ask people, is there one piece of advice that you would have told yourself, right? 15, 20 years ago, to set yourself up for this kind of success is one thing that surprised you. What lesson would you give to your former self and then to all of us? Understand your business. Number one, put the right people in place. Number two, and realize that EBITDA is everything because that's all anybody really cares about is how much money you make so they can figure out how much money they can make off of you. That's great because we tend to think that 
entrepreneurs come in and they have all this emotion behind their business and all the buyers are thinking about is what you just said, the financial profile of the business, whether it's EBITDA or revenue, it's all they care about, right? And getting to that understanding, you got to get there and you got to get there quickly. I mean, most people don't understand the whole concept is they borrow money, they lever it up, hence the word leverage buyout. Yep. Okay. Borrow the money for a $50 million business or whatever your number is. Yep. And their goal is to figure out how to sell it for $150 million or more. So they use the other people's money, okay, to create that leverage, okay, to repay their investors and to walk away with a ridiculous amount of money using your business as that tool. And when you understand that, that's what, you know, that's why today I could do it much quicker because I know what they're looking for. That's great. Yeah. That leverage when they're going out to borrow money, they can only borrow money against the profitability of your company. It is an imaginary emotional thing, right? right? Yeah. It isn't how much credit you have. Exactly. Exactly. They're borrowing against what they see as the history of the business. And they got a pretty good idea. If the history was here, they got a pretty good idea where the business is going. Brian, this is great. I really appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Yeah. Consider you're a friend and now you're a neighbor. This is fantastic. It might be a little while before I'm that neighbor, but yes, I can't <laughs> you're wait. You're working on it. It's looking amazing. It's ideal spot. So it's great. It's Thank great. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with me. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.